I'd like for you to turn to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The book of Galatians is actually a letter. In fact, the 20, of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 of them are letters. Now letter writing is a tricky business I don't suppose that many of us tonight would actually say that I enjoy writing letters. It is a, writing letters is a work of art. There are some people who do letter writing as a vocation. I often receive uh, material in my office to my, uh, um, to my position of people who uh, offer at a price to write letters for me, uh, all the way from writing letters to congratulate people on their birthdays to letters to people who are in sorrow. Because letter writing is, a is an art, really, an art form. It's difficult to write letters for several reasons. I find it difficult. One is that we're not face to face. We don't have the opportunity to communicate non-verbally. There are no non-verbal uh, expressions, facial expressions, body language. We don't know when we offend somebody so we can't immediately uh, do something to take away the offense. When we write a letter, we run the risk of somebody else reading it. And so we're not able really to share maybe our deepest feelings for the fear that somebody else might read the letter. Letter writing is not an easy thing. Remember that this letter is written to people that we have never seen and written by people we have never seen. It was written in a culture and to a culture that none of us can uh, comprehend at any, in any way. There is no way that you and I can have any kind of point of reference with regard to the culture in which this letter was written totally out of, out of our ability to even imagine. It is translated from a language that is not our native tongue, and always you lose something in translation. So there are all these barriers that are involved in trying to translate or to understand or to, um, to exegete 
the letter to the Galatian Christians. And only on rare occasions do you ever read from the New Testament, a, a letter from the New, in the New Testament that was actually written by the person who is responsible for it. Most of these people dictated the letters and they were written by an amanuensis. They're, an amanuensis was really a kind of a slave, a slave who was kind of a secretary. And so there is this kind of thing going on that the writer of the book of Galatians or other letters were writing to somebody, dictating to somebody, and they were writing it down. But this passage that I read tonight from Galatians is unique in the sense that it was written by the hand of Paul himself. And he takes up the stylus and he begins to write this passage. And that makes this part of the, of the letter to the Galatians totally unique. He writes the words down himself. Now he says that uh, he comes to the close of this letter, I think, and he decides that he wants to emphasize in a bold way, in a, in a profound way, what he's been talking about in the, in the preceding verses, what has really been on his heart. And so he begins to write in, a, in, in these big, large letters for emphasis. He uses a term that refers to the characters of the alphabet. And he says, in essence, I think what he's saying is, I so much want in the last part of this letter to make a bold and, 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 and profound impact upon you that I'm writing this out in large letters. You ever read a letter written by a child who was just learning to write and he's got these big, you know, letters that he writes there, maybe he signs his name. And the tone of this last passage, this last part of Galatians, the tone of it is bold and severe. It's like a man who, if he were speaking, would put his hands to his mouth and shout, I want you to hear this because this is what I've been trying to say all along. Now why did he write such large letters? There, there is a suggestion that the Apostle Paul was almost blind. You remember when we came through chapter 3 and, and Paul says that I know you love me so much that if you could you would take out your eyes and give them to me. And there is a theory that Paul's thorn in the flesh was, a, was an eye disease. He was almost blind and some suggest that he wrote these lar in large print, large letters because that was all he could see he was so blind. I think rather that he wrote these large letters and pressed the pen upon the page with such feeling that he wanted them to understand that at the very end of this he had something to say he very much wanted them to hear or to see. And he was conveying a sense of feeling about two or three things. He was conveying a deep and intense feeling about outward religion as opposed to inward religion. Now these Galatians were surrounded by these um, Judaizers and these Judaizers were attempting to, to lead the Christian out from under the message of the, of the gospel of grace and they were first century legalists who were trying to, 
to lead these Christians back to a legalistic lifestyle like they're on. And the Apostle Paul has said in previous verses, you fools, you bought a lie. And you've begun to walk on, a, on the basis or live on the basis of a system of thought that is completely contrary to the gospel. And the difference, Paul is suggesting, between outward as, a, as opposed to inward religion or inward faith, outward religion as opposed to inward faith is this, is that inward faith is a response to the grace of God so that man understands that God by grace accomplished in the work of salvation, in the work of redemption, His eternal salvation, and His response to that was a response to faith and that it came from the heart, it came from the inside. And these Judaizers were teaching an outward religion that said, that if you're a legitimate child of God, you'll have to be circumcised. This right of Abraham passed on down through the Jewish nation. They were saying if you really want to be characterized as the people of God, linked with God in a distinctive way, the distinctive nature of a child of God is that he bears the mark of an outward right. He bears the mark of circumcision. And so here is, the, here is the, the feeling that the Apostle Paul is conveying. That the Christian religion is not an outward expression, an outward religion. It is the response of a man by faith in the work of God's grace. Now the best way we can um, apply the idea involved in this um, ceremonial rite is to apply it to baptism. It's, it's almost the same thing. It's the same thing as emphasizing baptism as a means of salvation, an external rite as a means of salvation. Now these children were baptized tonight, but they were not baptized in order to become a Christian. It's called baptismal regeneration. They were baptized as an expression of their faith in the finished work of Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection. And their baptism is a picture of an internal experience, an outward expression of an internal experience of change wrought by the grace of God and their faith in that. Now why do these Judaizers teach the importance of circumcision? Verse 12 says, in order that they would not be persecuted. And verse 13 says, in order that they might boast. Now I want you to take a pencil, if you will, and in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, just circle the word that, T-H-A-T, because it is the beginning of a purpose clause, that. He says first that they emphasize this external right in order that they might escape the persecution that came to a Jew when he converted to Jesus Christ. Now watch this carefully. For a Jew to, be, to, for a Jew to come to Jesus Christ was to put himself in jeopardy of persecution. It's still true. A number of years ago I heard Don Brandeis speak. Don Brandeis was a son of 
the Brandeis family. Judge Brandeis was the first Jew to ever serve on the Supreme Court. Don Brandeis was a Christian. He, he became a, a, he was converted to Christianity, converted out of Judaism. And the result of his conversion to Jesus Christ was this persecution. In fact, they had a funeral. His family had a funeral for him and they pronounced him dead. They disinherited him. They, they cut off all ties to him. They wouldn't even allow him to come to the house of the, the, the father, to his father's house. Now listen, Don Brandeis gave his testimony in an evangelism conference several years ago, and he told how lonely that was at Christmas time. And he said he would drive up in the neighborhood and just park down the street, and he would watch his family come, his brothers and his sisters all getting together at his, at his home for Christmas. And he said, he, you know, he'd cry and weep in the, in the fact of his um, you know, estrangement from his family. When a Jew converts to Christ, he suffers persecution. Paul talks about this. He talks in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says that he was beaten by rods and, and, he, and he was beaten by the cat of nine tails. He was shipwrecked. When you read the account of his persecution, it's amazing to discover how much of that persecution was at the hand of his own countrymen, his Jew, his Jewish uh, fellows. And I was reading a book of Acts one time and I came upon this, this thing that, that, that I don't know if I've ever read in any book that Paul had been a Christian for two years and he'd, he'd gone off out to Arabia to, to, to get along with God. That's not, that's not unique. You've read that. The unique thing that's recorded in the book of Acts is that the Christians, some of the Christians, went over to Tarsus to see if they could find Paul. They'd heard about his conversion. And when they went to Tarsus, his hometown, and remember that Paul grew up there and he was the most prominent Jew ever to come from that city. And when these Christians went to Tarsus to see if they could find him, they couldn't find anybody in Tarsus who even knew him. And the implication of that was that everybody had wiped him off the face of the earth in their memory as though he didn't even exist. And so Paul says the reasons why these Judaizers have come in here is because they don't want to face the suffering that comes for a person who commits his life to Jesus Christ. Do you? Somebody said one time, you know, all these people get up and say, I'm willing to die for Christ. He said, that would be the easy part. Are you willing to live in such a way that people want to kill you? That's the real key. The second reason why he says that they emphasize circumcision is in order that they might boast. Now let me say a word here tonight. It's a time for me to say something about the fact that that uh, we've almost become, in the Southern Baptist Convention, obsessed with ecclesiastical statistics. Now we, we talk about, with, we laugh about ministerial, ministerially speaking, and we count, you know, how many folks we're going to, we count, you know. I, I'm telling you what, that's a, real, that's a real problem with me, this emphasis on numbers. Um, have you read... Where's his book um, uh, about integrity? Listen to what he says. Once you make getting results your chief aim, 
There's no end to the mistakes you will make, and believe me, we've made them. First, you worry about numbers. Then you start substituting statistical records for spiritual reality, which is something like reading the recipe instead of eating the meal. How many attended? How many made decisions? How many joined? How much was given in the offering? All these things are more important than whether or not we glorify God in a meeting. Before long, the church ceased to be seen as people in an assembly. It became names and numbers in a file and later in a computer. People were not an end in themselves. They became a means to an end, getting a bigger crowd and getting more results. Let me hasten to say that there's nothing wrong, it's unspiritual about keeping accurate records. Spurgeon claimed that those who criticized statistics usually had none to report. I think he was right, he said. But he said, one day at a pastor's meeting, the good doctor was right, he said, but he would be the first to agree with me that there is a significant difference between knowing the number of the sheep and knowing the state of the flock. The good shepherd is concerned about even one sheep that strayed away. Numbers. Now you may not, this may get down to where it hurts, but I want to read you this little satire. I had it filed away a long time ago. Whipped it out this week. Happened on it. God's providence, of course. Now, this, this meeting is called of the disciples, it's, been, it's called at the request of Matt. Now that's Matthew and John. Big John is John. Tom is Thomas. And little Jim is James the Less. Here's the way it goes. Bart, would you please open with prayer? Bart, did you get that? Bart! Almighty God, we ask your blessing upon all we do and say. And we pray that you see our side as your side. Amen. Pete, 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 Pete says, this is Peter, Jesus, we've been following you around for a long time and we're getting concerned about the attendance figures. Tom, how many were out there on that mountain yesterday? Um, 37. Well, this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> we're going to have to pep things up, guys. We expect things to happen. John, I want to suggest you pull off more miracles. That walking on water... <laughs> was, a, was the most exciting thing I've ever seen. Only a few of us saw it though. Now if a thousand or so could have a chance to witness it, we could have more than we could handle out there on the hill. Little Jim, I agree. Those healing miracles are terrific. But only a limited number really get to see what's happened. Let's add more water to wine. More fish and chips. <laughs> more storms. And more, more signs, that's what the people want. Right on, Peter says. And another thing, publicity is essential. And you tell half the people you cure to keep it quiet. Let the word get around. Now I'm all for miracles, but I want to hear a few stories I can understand. This business, those who have ears to hear, let him hear, just clouds the issue. Man, you're going to have to make it clear so we can take something home with us. Big John, I'd like to offer an order of service. First a story, then a big miracle. <laughs> 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 
followed, followed by an offering, then maybe a song and a poem, followed by a small miracle. <laughs> you, you know something to bring them back next time. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, you can have a prayer if you like. Tom says, we have to do something, little Jim. That's for sure. Tennis has been awful. And here's old Judas. He says, I'd like to say if we're going to continue to meet in this upper room, we need to do something about this carpet. <laughs> oh, mercy. Second, emphasis, second concern was the emphasis on the divine, the human as opposed to the divine. Look at verse 14. Read it with me. May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. Paul is saying this, that what matters is are you a new person? I uh, got up here early this morning for the men's prayer breakfast, and I am sure glad I did. And David Whitlock got up to give his testimony, and he said, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church, and my parents told me everything I spoke. He said, I just kind of grew up understanding that one day I'd be a Christian. And he said, I joined the church, and I got involved. He said, I went, got off to college, got involved in the BSU. He said, I had this little system worked out, and when I did something bad, I did something good to counteract it, you know, make up for it. Had a little, good little system working. He said, I hated the church, organized religion. He said, I didn't want to tithe, didn't want to witness, didn't want to go to church, didn't want to pray. And he said, one time, a couple of years ago, he said, all of a sudden, I was changed. I became a new creation. I started wanting to do the things I had never wanted to do. I started wanting to tithe. I started wanting to read the Bible and pray. I started wanting to come to church. He said, I was changed from the inside. Now Paul is talking to this group of Judaizers surrounding these Christians, and he says, let me tell you what circumcision amounts to. Let me tell you what baptism amounts to. Zero, zilch, nothing. You can be baptized 50 times. Won't make a bit of difference. What matters is have you had a transformation of the nat your nature from within. What matters is not the human, the divine. And you go back to verse 14, he says, May it never be. That's the strongest expression he could use. He said, I no longer claim to boast of anything except that which honors the Savior. And what I boast in is this. I, look, I point back to the cross and I say, Look what God has done. Now humanism hates that kind of message. I heard about a man who woke up one night from a terrible dream. He said, in this dream I saw a man, his back was to me. He had this big whip and he was about to bring it down upon the back of the Lord, back of the Savior. And he said, when that man turned around, I looked myself right in the face. 
Humanism hates that kind of message that says, I stand before the cross and it reveals my sinfulness, my guilt, my hopelessness. And I find in that wonderful moment of grace hope and love and a reason for living. Humanism loves religion and it takes pride in what man does and it works to get the glory. The Apostle Paul says, I've determined that I will boast of nothing. I will claim nothing except my understanding of what God has done. And one man said, every time I come to an intersection, it reminds me of a cross. Another man carries around in his pocket one of these little crosses. So every time he reaches in his pocket, he, re he feels it and remembers it. That may be a little too much for you, but there's nothing wrong with focusing on the cross for the only person who can ever give you life-changing grace and satisfaction is our Lord. And his concern was regard with regard to the eternal as it as opposed to the temporal. Look at verse 16. He said, And those who walk by this rule, now that word rule comes from a word that means canon. We get our word canon from that word, not canon that fires, you know, shoots. But canon like the canonization of the Scripture, that measuring rod by which the church fathers determined which book would go in the Bible. It's a carpenter's rule. And what Paul is saying is this, he says, let this be the standard of measurement by which you live your life. What? What should be the standard of measurement by which you live your life? The cross way. The Savior way. So that the things of, that are eternal, the things that last, are the, the cross way things. What is that old saying? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What, 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 maybe we could paraphrase that. Only one life will soon be passed. Only the cross way will last. And the only way that, that there is assurance of eternal life is by way of the cross. So the Apostle Paul is saying in essence, everything that is done a in any other way, in any other measuring rule, then the crossway is doomed to extinction, to failure, to disappear. And the things that are done, the Savior's way, will last. There are two applications and we're out of here. In our do-it-yourself society, the message of grace is easily rejected. Just too simple, isn't it? He came knocking at my office several years ago. One late, one afternoon, I was working late. And this guy came in, told me the same old story. Of drinking drugs, he lost his family, lost his life, the meaning of it. And I shared with him the, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sin, was raised from the dead, and that in a childlike faith we could trust Jesus and count on Him, appropriate by faith what He did for us at Calvary. And it was like a gift you receive. These were His words as He left. I wish it were that easy. I wish it were that simple. In our do-it-yourself society, we think it's got to be something difficult. Second application, 
in God's plan, the only way we are accepted is through the work of Christ. Can I say that again? In God's plan, the only way we're accepted is through the work of Christ. The only work that God accepts is the work of Christ. The only work that God accepts is the work of Christ. Wouldn't you like to turn your life over to Jesus? Isn't it time for you to receive Him? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that there is this wonderful gospel news that salvation is available to everyone on the basis of their faith. And that there is in the plan of God this divine plan for us to be born again, transformed in, within, that at the core of our being, Jesus Christ comes and His invasion brings new life, new desires, a new creation. Old things are past, new things are coming to be. We thank You for that wonderful news. May we respond to it in faith, for we pray in Jesus' name. There are three invitations, an invitation for you to come tonight and do what we just described. Take by faith His gift. Turn away from your life of self-effort and by faith trust Him. Or maybe you need to come and place your life in a Baptist congregation of believers serving God or to recommit yourself to the Lord Jesus walk with Him more completely, to live with Him, for Him, more committedly, devotedly. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.